0: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. It is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, the cultural theorist Mark Fisher of K-punk fame once wrote. Well, it turns out the two might not be completely unrelated. The end of capitalism might mean the end of the world, at least as we know it. My guest today is a Canadian historian and professor of the history of ideas at Wellesley College. He has authored and edited several books, the latest of which is a handsome volume I have right here, provocatively titled Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Welcome to The Bunker, Quinn Slobodian. Happy to be here. Quinn, why crack up? capitalism first of all because i think it, there might be a cultural thing it might mean something slightly different over here
1: well i guess crack up for me has an implication of a kind of dissolution or fragmentation process and my point with the book was to kind of work against what i feel like is the master narrative that we have right now about the world since the end of the cold war which is kind of on the one hand a process of globalization things kind of scaling up becoming more integrated the European Union, the World Trade Organization, NAFTA. And then on the other hand, the backlash against that, which tends to get narrated as a movement down to the national level. So you have the emergence of kind of neonationalisms and populisms that seek to intervene and break up the existing globalization. My point with the book, though, is to try to draw attention to the fact that throughout this period there's been a parallel process happening beneath the surface of the nation state. A kind of a fragmentation, the creation of new jurisdictions, new mm. sites of investment, new privileged legal regulatory spaces that has been already kind of eroding what we might think naively as a, the kind of smooth space of the nation state. So the crack up capitalism argument sort of suggests that this is something that is already happening. We're getting a kind of a fragmentation of nation states internally um, for capital to do its accumulation processes. And then also, as I draw attention to in the book, there are some people who would like to drive this process further and to actually mm. um, they start to envision a, um, a world without nations and without states altogether.
0: There are basically players who would profit from the dissolution of both the state, uh, nation state as an entity, and social cohesion in general, right? And you identify specifically the pandemic as a period that. Kind of brought a lot of this stuff bubbling up to the surface. And it was particularly Mm -hmm. pronounced in the States. Why was that?
1: It was there, but it was elsewhere too. I mean, one of the things I was really fascinated by, sort of sitting in um, isolation like everybody else in the early months of the pandemic, was to see certain languages, like the language of green zones and red zones, for example, move from where it had first started, which was in sort of Ebola containment clinics in earlier years to the decks of cruise ships where where coronavirus was trying to be contained and they would <clears> start taping off, you know, this area is a green zone, that area is a red zone, then extrapolated up to entire nations. So India created a system of, of red zones and green zones, as did Italy. So you had this kind of um, territorialization of the threat that was leading to you know new borders inside of nations where they hadn't been before right mm, you had mm. things that otherwise would have been absolutely extraordinary science fiction to imagine that part of Long Island, for example, would have a kind of a cordon sanitaire around it, and you would need to have a sort of papers to leave and come in. I mean, this is
0: far from... And California would be declaring itself basically an independent country almost. Right.
1: Or as as I wrote about that, you know, the governor of one state would be kind of using an armed guard to make sure that the PPE equipment would not get confiscated by a governor of a neighboring state. So... And different parts of the country in the United States were were creating compacts in, the, in New England in the Southwest and so on. So I felt like very quickly, like literally within a matter of weeks, we'd gone from something which was just taken for granted, which was the internal coherence and unity of something like the United States, at least at an administrative basic level to in in panic mode, in emergency mode, a process of crack up sort of almost incipient or nascently mm, mm, mm. starting to make itself seen. And so it wasn't hard at that moment to imagine this accelerating, going further. And there were people who were watching this and saying like, wow, this is actually really exciting. What if we could keep this going? What if we could not ever return back to the status quo ante, but kind of multiply the, ter- the polities, multiply the territories? and then make them compete with each other for scarce resources, for labor, for investment, wouldn't that, they thought to themselves, kind of accelerate the process also of efficiency, uh, productivity, you know, the better and better allocation of resources according to their um, way of measuring these things.
0: Mm. So you focus a lot on economic zones and free ports and tax havens, and how do they relate to this?
1: Well, again, it's partially an intervention from me as a historian. Now, when we think about global history over the last uh, 75 years or so, there is kind of two histories that we tend to tell. One is this process of economic globalization and greater integration. But another one is the story of the end of empires, and overseas empires, the process of decolonization. And in my last book, I sort of told the story about how Uh, a new set of institutions, things like the World Trade Organizations, the IMF, and the World Bank Investment Law, was created to kind of help to stitch together an economic space that had in some way been broken up by the process of decolonization. Mm. This book is kind of taking the step one, taking it one step further to say that, in fact, the creation of nation states after empire wasn't the end of history, and it wasn't the end of politics or political geography. But it was actually a kind of a stage before what we start to see, especially by the 1980s, which is the creation of special economic zones, certainly in China, above all export processing zones, um, offshore jurisdictions, which become kind of the control centers for financial capitalism and also new sites of high, high intensity manufacturing. So if we tell a, a story as historians, of a world of empires moving to a world of nation states, and then claim that we've finished the story, I think we're missing a big part about the way that capitalism is operational in sort of everyday life. So the insertion of these these subnational jurisdictions and these sort of peculiar zones was sort of not just to kind of jar us out of our assumptions about the way that politics works, but also to call attention to the kind of unevenness with which money moves around and thereby the, the suction of, of labor at sort of differential scales. Yeah.
0: I am interested in this because there's a big movement towards freeports in the UK at the mm-hmm. moment. I don't know if you're yep. um, aware of that. And orthodox economics sees that kind of economic zone as rather ineffective. It has been shown not to produce value, but just displace activity. Mm-hmm. And you can get into a situation where Texas offers really good tax incentives this year. So Tesla ups and moves its car production there. Mm -hmm. But then the incentives end and Nebraska offers really good Mm -hmm. incentives and you create these really mobile um, companies that just get up and move to the next state that's offering an an inducement at that moment. So how can something that ineffective be simultaneously a sort of great threat?
1: I mean, the tenacity of this this ideology around freeports is definitely one of the things I think that my book (laughs) tries to help explain. I mean, people were joking over the last few months that every time Sunak opened his mouth, he seemed to be talking about freeports again. And this was almost like a kind of embedded marketing campaign for my book's publication. Because what the book describes is, is the kind of genesis of this freeport fascination. And it shows in particular how the idea of Ring fencing off little bits of territory of of the of the United Kingdom and lifting certain kinds of regulations was has a very specific kind of genealogy and it comes in the late 1970s and it comes with a specific fascination with Hong Kong mm. and a belief that you can create miniature Hong Kongs in the middle of Liverpool in the middle of Glasgow in the middle of London by sort of to confront here
0: you will be aware that one of the marketing guises under which Brexit was sold was mm-hmm. that we would become Singapore on Thames, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is almost exactly that mm-hmm. idea of mm-hmm. you know little Hong Kongs here, there and everywhere. The chapter on London, I thought, was particularly illuminating and really beautifully titled. You call it City in Shards. And you say that London has come to see the presence of the super wealthy as a sign of urban health. When in truth, what it does is push up prices and basically expel the uh, the poor. Is social housing then the the progressives' rational response to this kind of what what I call gatoization?
1: Yeah, I mean the Singapore example is apropos there, right? Because ninety percent of Singapore's population lives in state-owned housing it's effectually it's, it is the sort of a utopia of social housing actually apart from the large numbers of non-citizen migrant workers who are housed in dormitories and kept sort of segregated from the rest of the population but the Singapore chapter in the book kind of calls attention to this Brexiteer imaginary by saying that the better way to think about it is that there were actually two Singapores that were often in competition with one another. there is the one that was this claim that all you needed was courage, the leap of faith, lift all regulations in this really quite boring and repetitive miniature Hong Kong model. But the other one is the idea of a kind of a proactive interventionist state that, that does industrial policy R&D and brings in new investors that actually Dominic Cummings in his more lucid moments was a kind of a proponent of that mm-hmm. version of a more activist state, that version of Singapore, which is more accurate. But the the real sort of irony or tragedy of london that i trace in that chapter is that thatcher among all people is often identified as the kind of the one of the foremost kind of avatars of neoliberalism in the late 19th century as someone who supposedly combined a vision of economic freedom with a belief in democracy or political freedom but the biggest legacy that she has in this city and thereby in a way in this country is to create sites of investment and sort of wealth hoarding for precisely non-democratic forms of capitalism. I mean, mm-hmm. Gulf, Gulf states use London as a piggy bank. China, when it is interested in f- finding sort of you know high worth investments, then it will suggest, as in with the Belt and Road Initiative, that it might want to start building in a major way in in, in the Docklands, for example. But as soon as the winds change, as happened after the coronavirus, they up and left. And so rather than sort of finding a harmonious balance between democracy and capitalism, it seems that the Thatcheride legacy is to sort of leave England more vulnerable than ever to authoritarian forms of capitalism.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former US president in history to face a criminal trial.
1: The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records.
0: This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot
1: and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
0: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I read a rather unkind review of the book in the Telegraph, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm perhaps, that, that who seems to take away the idea that you're just blaming liberals for everything. Mm. I mean, interesting in itself that they seem to consider liberal an interchangeable term with libertarian. Mm-hmm. And, and also they call you Peter Slobodian yeah, right. and Queen Slobodan. <laughs> <reason. laughs> Their central criticism mm-hmm. is that you seem to circle back to the idea that the states are already effectively a series of zones, mm. and they haven't drifted apart from each other. So what makes mm. you think it's going to happen now? Well, I mean, I think that
1: the the goal of the book, in a way, was not so much to sort of give a working manual to either the present or the future of capitalism, mm. as it was to Home in on people who I think are kind of seeing clearly the kind of spirit of the age in a way. So the book is actually, people might be surprised to hear kind of an intellectual history for the large part. I mean, it's it's describing the ideas of people like Milton Friedman, but also his son, David Friedman, also his grandson, da- uh, Patry Friedman. A bad reading of the book, for example, would be that I'm saying that all forms of decentralization or anarchism even – are hardwired as right-wing kind of concepts Mm. and or are sort of bound up with libertarianism or capitalism in some profound way. Actually, that's not what I'm arguing in the book. What I'm arguing in the book is that there are varieties of anarchism and decentralization that I think are especially interesting because they take dynamics that are already structuring our world, Mm. for example, the predominance of commercial contracts as a way that people have to interact with each other, the use of third party arbitration, the heavily legalized nature of everyday life, from like the leases that we hold to the kind of pensions that we find ourselves attached to through contract, and they 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 ramp that up so rather than saying. Let's figure out a way to decommodify, delegalize, decapitalize life. They sort of say, "What if we did everything we're doing now, but even more so?" Mm, mm. So the utopias that they plan are utopias of law and utopias of rules, mm. where every interaction is mediated through uh, often third-party insurance companies, the threat of arbitration. There's kind of a micromanagement actually of everyday life, which is why you know in their honest moments, of which they have many actually one of their admirable qualities, their frankness about their beliefs. They say, well, what are we talking about? Well, gated communities, right? Gated residential communities are a good working example of our decentralized utopias. What are gated communities but extremely micromanaged, highly legalized, highly regulated spaces? They're not spaces of sort of inventiveness or play or creativity. So that's one kind of decentralization. It's one kind of fragmentation but it's interesting to me not because it stands in for all of them, but because it stands in for what seem to be some of the most powerful mm-hmm. forms of political development. So to say that these zones are proliferating beneath the surface of states is not necessarily to say that they are so many ways that the state is being um, disempowered or made weaker, because as I do make clear in the book, this, these are more often than not used and instrumentalized by states why would you perforate a hole in your regulatory framework well because you can disempower not yourself but others mm, you know mm, competing mm. civil society groups you can create a space where people aren't allowed to protest or where they're not allowed to organize freely then that actually increases your power as the the sovereign yeah. and decreases you know the the sort of the thick layer of civil society, which, in my opinion, should have as much
0: power as possible. I'm interested in in two things to explore, finally. The first is, how do these forces relate to large corporations, Mm. who are also players players Mm -hmm. with enormous power, but who, I would think, rely on a level of social cohesion that means Mm -hmm. that they have a workforce that makes stuff and they have people who make a salary mm-hmm. that can buy their stuff. Mm-hmm. In other words, they may not benefit by a complete collapse of the social order and mm-hmm. right? And they are big powerful players and they have big powerful lobbies. So what do they think of these sort mm-hmm. of seasteading and zones and
1: Yeah. I mean I would say a couple of things about that. First, I think now, the last book I wrote, Globalist, came out in 2018. So I wrote most of it before Brexit, before Trump. Mm. And it then ended up coming out in the immediate wake of those things. So I had the feeling of describing something that no longer existed, which was a kind of naturalized globalism on the part of the world's leaders that we always needed to scale upwards, we needed to create larger trade agreements and so on. We are now, of course, in a, in a backlash moment. But what I think I realized by the time I'd finished writing this book was, in some ways, I'm not describing 2023 as much as I'm describing sort of 2009, 2008, the height of sort of Silicon Valley's, I think, mm-hmm. influence. And when it still had a positive um, vision in the United States, when the idea that the paper belt has someone like Balaji Srinivasan sort of disparagingly called – D.C. and Boston and and New York as places that were sort of antiquated legacy sites of law creation, journalism and money creation that were being all displaced by a new digitized world. That was something that had a incredible power about sort of 2008, 2009. I mean, I think especially now in... The, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, you see how important voice is rather than exit. You know, they actually just come whining back to the hmm. to the feet of the Treasury Department and the Fed when things actually get bad. So I think the reason I mention this is a roundabout way of saying that what I'm describing in the book, I think, is less a working model for how you could ever actually organize society as it is a sort of a symptomatic ideology of a yeah. particular moment. Because the idea that you could, let's say, and this is literally what they're saying, erect a kind of a steel pole in the middle of the Caribbean and put a sort of a stainless steel pod on it with some like luxury mid-century modern furniture and then just kind of live there and just take in the view it's like <laughs> the possibility of this like dissolves immediately yeah. right I mean it's like where do you get anything where do you get your food your milk your water your gas so it's itself is a kind of it's a fever dream of a particular moment in our kind of global capitalist mm. recent past yeah. that. You're right. It does not actually it doesn't correspond with an earlier moment of the transnational corporation as our understanding of how capitalism was working, which needed security over borders, which needed other countries they to, seem to mean conflict basically. Right. The two, yeah. the two and, and they are now too. I mean, in America now the battle line is between big capital, which has been called disparagingly by the right, woke capital. By which they just mean these corporations and these uh, asset managers actually care about the values and interests of their own customers, which would seem like a good mm. responsible capitalist thing to do, posed against this sort of fantasy individual founder tech you know, guru who can sort of act without any sort of um, social obligations or any sort of attachments whatsoever, which you know, both are fantasies, both are kind of projections. But I think that the purpose of the book was to kind of gather in one place what I feel like were a lot of threads trying to understand this, yeah. this sort of techno libertarianism and sort of put it all between two covers and say, like, if you want to know what this world, how they see themselves, this might be a place to stand.
0: So, So let me ask you one final question, because you understand this so much better. What is the response to it because it seems to me that as a response to hold fast to this idea of the nation state as it currently is mm. may be ineffective mm. because all those systems and all those players that are pushing for decentralization they seem to factor that into the equation so they you know in there is the implicit idea that the state is lying to you. Um, You know, they're the establishment, they're the elite, but we're not. Is further federalization the answer? Mm -hmm. Is, for instance, the EU's rules of origin Mm -hmm. um, regime seems to me to be a, a guard against the idea that someone can go set up an island somewhere and just you know, use slavery and produce Mm -hmm. stuff much cheaper and then just Mm -hmm. send it to the rest of the world. There seem to be some movements around global tax rates, around sort of pushing down uh, on uh, tax havens. So is that the answer, Mm -hmm. sort of global cooperation to counteract this idea of regional breakup?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think at that most macro level, it does seem clear that we're closer now to kind of bringing the offshore world kind of like into harness, so to speak, mm-hmm. than we have been in a long time. Right? The idea of a global corporate minimum tax, the idea of sort of mandatory tax reporting is something that I think might help states stop using this idea of the threat of exit as a way to sort of self-discipline often, right? Mm. Sort of say like, we have no choice. We have to drive down the corporate tax or the, the marginal tax rate. Otherwise if we don't, the money will all go, the businesses will all go. I mean I think when that that blackmail threat, which I think is often more um imagined than real, is like regulated out of existence, then we might have moved one step closer to the possibility of a more expansionary, kind of re-social democratized states. But I think at a more micro level, as you say I don't think that solves really all of our problems or even gets closer to modeling kind of more sustainable versions of mm. human life. And there, this is the kind of where by the back, through the back door, I start to kind of sympathize with the decentralization impulses of some of the actors in a way because the idea of kind of dropouts within um, within states acting as sorts of sites of experimentation for, let's say, you know, less carbon intensive forms of life, um, and like the, the 15-minute city not mm. for nothing has become... Or basic
0: income or... Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's, I mean, this amazingly, like, something as simple as a walkable city has become seen by some people as like, <laughs> you know, a conspiracy hatched in Davos. But, you know, I sympathize with, with the members of this anarcho-capitalist world who say, listen, all we want is our patch of territory. We'll organize it, to, you know, to death, and con- do everything through contracts and through third-party arbitration. You can do what you want. You guys want to do like uh, socialized medicine in this Bay Area, and you want to like have all public housing. Feel free. We'll see how you do. Mm. Let's do a kind of experiment, mm, right? Mm. Like I think in its honorable mode, yeah. That attitude has some virtues, which is yeah. to say that, like, I mean,
0: not for the patient. In that area, that may need a transplant. <laughs> well, that's right,
1: but maybe white. Presumably, not just up and relocate. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so I mean, none of these are really, none of the futures we can see are really very bright, but some are like at least a little brighter than others. Maybe.
0: Professor Quince Lobodian, thank you so much for letting me poke your brain. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with Queen Slobodian's words. Neither island nor cloud can exist without its underclass. From Honduras to Dubai, the wage service class is the easiest for the visionaries to forget and the hardest for them to live without. The cloud floats because the underclass holds it up. Time will tell if they drop their arms one day and make something new. This is Alex in the bunker saying over and out.
1: This episode of The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. Art direction by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.